Welcome to Live with Greg or Live with Greg, depending on semantics. <laughs> That must have been tough. It was hard. Must have been tough. Yeah, I don't do heartbreak really well. <laughs> no, I, and and I don't either. And and uh, you know, I I had a situation in my life. My when my brother passed away, I went through the, uh, a super 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 dark time, and I almost lost my marriage. I, and and thank God for Kathy. And and you know, I don't want to be corny, but thank God for God. I, I actually, you know, you mentioned about spirituality, and um, I, I remember. I'm getting too deep already. No, no. that's good. That's good. <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, laying on a on a hotel floor. I was at the Aspen Food and Wine Festival, and, and my brother and I were super, super, super tight. I mean, just super tight. And, and he passed away. I watched him die over three days in a hospital room, and it was just, it was so hardcore. And, and I remember just laying there, and, and uh, you know, I, I decided to stay an extra day after the, the festival, thinking, yeah, it'd be fun just to hang out in Aspen. Well, it was bad, 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 bad. And um, I remember laying on the floor and, and just saying, God, if, if there's ever a time that I need to be uplifted, honest to God, it's right now, and uh, the, the tingle started at the ends of my fingers and on both arms and worked. I mean, you know, it, believe me or not, it was the most uplifting experience I've ever had. I've never felt anything like it, and it was still a long process afterwards, but it made me realize there's there's some good, good things out there. And yeah. got my shit together and, and saved my marriage, and thank God for my incredibly wonderful, lovely wife. That's awesome. That's too deep for the first two damn minutes. Oh, that's good. We didn't even have an official start. <laughs> okay. That's okay. I like this stuff. It's old friends, man. That's yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned about, like, believe it or not, I think I've had this realization. I mean, we, it's stuff we know, but, you know, it's like reiterating I think the spiritual is a personal experience and part of what happens with religion is you have this experience that uplifts your life and you want to share it with people but unless it's an experience it's just words on a paper or just a story. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that and and I think there's been so many people that have taken advantage of that religiousness, you know, and you know, you see it all the time and, and, and it should be a personal thing. I, I would never push my religious experience on somebody else or demand that they relive my life, but I, I, it's self-fulfilling. I mean, that's the kind of the thing about it. I could see it in you. I can see the light in you if you know what, what I'm talking about. And yeah, yeah. All right, so I have a question for you. <laughs> yeah. Because my memory of when I met you, we were up on the mountains. I was in a dark place. I was in you a psychologically broken place. Yeah. So I'm always curious what that looked like. <laughs> Well, you know, you you have always been a, and I say this about my kids. You're a good person, and and uh, and and it was clear that you were a good person. It was clear that you were in a in a tough state, but you were always game, you know, and you were always ready to go have fun, and always, you know, I, I think. If I recall right, was it you that cooked the best potatoes? Because that's all we could afford to eat up there. Somebody made fried potatoes up there. That I was. I think that was Mike. Was probably. it Mike? And probably Mike. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I don't remember you as being like a lunatic or anything. I mean, I, I that's why when I saw your name, it was like you were one of my very favorite people in the crew. I mean, the other guys were all awesome too, but uh, you had a, a an aura about you and I know that I'm not trying to be too too deep or anything but you really did you had a really good spirit and uh, and and you could tell that you were working through the issues we all have and I we've all had it I mean I've, I've watched my kids go through things and you know there's certain ages and certain times in their lives where it's just like it's really hardcore and you know you think maybe everybody's against you when they're not so um, no, I didn't. I didn't notice anything weird. I always thought you were awesome. Thank you. Even though you, I think you flung my uh, what was it that that uh, album that I bought that everybody made so much fun of. It was one of those Toto. Uh, yeah, it might have been Toto. 
Because there was one song on there that I really liked, and I said, hey, guys, listen to this song. And everybody just looked at it, and I think it was you or Mike, you just grabbed the record and flung it off the deck. That's an asshole move. (laughs) But it was was nice. So, you know, maybe we should describe where we were living. So, I mean, maybe you have. No, I don't think so. So we were all up at an amazingly... Now it's probably a fifteen million dollar house, wouldn't you say, with the with the the location on Mount Tan, down that dirt road? Yeah, it's not a dirt road anymore. It's paved. Of course, there's more houses on it. Mountain Home Inn, right by the Mountain Home Inn up on Tan. Yeah, and it was a cabin. It was, but it was like three stories. It was insane. And it had that studio thing that was Ray's room that was up the dirt path. I remember being cold as shit in the wintertime because we couldn't afford heat. Or just, well, we had the wood-burning stove. Yeah, and we were tearing up the deck planks to, <laughs> to burn to make sure we could eat. And the problem with living up there is we were all working in restaurants. I mean, I know Mike and I were working at uh, the Trident in Sausalito. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, a hitchhiking every day. I didn't have a car. And right. sometimes we'd run down the hill. It shows how much difference our... Right. Physical shape has uh, has changed over these. Although going downhill is still a, a, a fun thing for me. That's good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that place was crazy. It was great for the time. Yeah. And and, and do you remember the Droogs when we were we were the Droogs for a security at, yeah, at, at the, uh, some event? Exotic erotic. Exactly ball. right. Well, it turned in. It wasn't the exotic erotic ball yet, but it turned into it. Yeah. And we were all dressed up in those costumes were you at the very first one that was at the um in San, teamsters in san francisco right yeah, yeah. Well, i was at the teamsters thing down near the wharf i'm pretty sure i was at the first one because it was crazy i i don't remember much because i think we were drinking a lot of alcohol i know i was i know we were supposed to be security but i think well because there was the very first one we weren't supposed to be security but we were security for a band who was friends of ours. Remember? Kicks. Kicks. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, maybe you weren't at the first one. And then there was no security for the whole thing. So we just took over. And then we did so well. The people who threw this thing, they're like, we want you next year. And then we just abused. Abused the hell out of yeah, it. But yeah. God, what a... That was one of those adventures that you remember forever. I mean, that clockwork orange thing, and, and we all looked pretty scary. I mean, yeah. you know, Mike being six foot seven and. You're like, what? Six, six foot six. I'm yeah. shrinking now, thank God. I don't bump my head <laughs> as much. So. But you're a big guy. Were, yeah. And if we weren't big, we were crazy, like That's Sid and me. And, totally, totally. Yeah, so so. It's what, what about, okay, now, what was the other guy's name in the group? So, Eric, well. It was Ray Albrick. Ray. What happened to Ray? He's up in Oregon. He's Good. married. He's doing well. Um, I just saw him recently because a mutual friend of ours from high school passed away. Um, we're at that point in our life, too. Boy, so... I'm, look, Kathy and I are, are having our 33rd, our 30th anniversary three years late because of COVID. And... Uh, we're, we're leaving in the next couple of weeks to, we were going to be visiting one of my very, very, very best friends in life since I've known, since I was 18 years old. And we were always talking, he lives in the Netherlands, he lived in the Netherlands. And uh, two months ago, we're going back and forth and talking about how exciting and wonderful it is that we're going to get together. And he had all these wonderful plans. And, and then I got a text saying, I got a problem. I got to go to the doctor. There's something wrong with my stomach. And the next day, I got another text saying, I have terminal stomach cancer, and I'll be gone in two weeks. And, you know, I'm just playing on what you said. Right, We're right. starting to lose friends. Right. Like, it's, it's, it's becoming real right now. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm still going. I'm going to visit his, his, uh, his widow. But uh, it's when you lose people like that, the, the interesting thing I found was that I immediately contacted all the other friends in that group, and we're going to have a reunion later this year mm-hmm. and kind of await for him and, and maybe stay in a little bit closer touch while we still have the opportunity. Yeah. That's that's why I'm glad I met back up with you. Yeah, we have to that's... go to the Trident restaurant and eat some eggs Benedict. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I worked at the Trident. I was working there, too, at the time. That's the other thing I was thinking about is, like, how did I keep a roof over my head and um, a job while going through this mad 
psychological chaos I was in. I know I'm supposed to be the interviewee, but what? How did you work your way through it? I mean, uh, seriously, seriously. Yeah. Well, all right. So the fulcrum, and I don't have a lot of answers to this, but the fulcrum for this break was I sold my soul to the devil. Like, we were all going to be rock stars, and it wasn't any sacrament or thing. I was just hanging out on that deck up on the cabin, and Sympathy for the Devil was playing, and we had just gotten to this thing, like, we were going to form this band, and I was going to be the lead singer. And I think that the way that all came about, there was some serious dysfunction to that wow like i think that that's was, heavy duty there was energy not supporting me being the lead singer mm-hmm. but whatever yeah so i just like oh, that's what it takes i'll do it and then kind of went on this journey <laughs> and so to answer your question um in a way i'm still making my way out of it what i mean by that is I believe that we can exist completely in love without any fear at all. Completely copacetic to life. And I'm not there. You know, I have anger comes up, doubts, all this stuff. I, I think that's life. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I have had just an amazing life and you know I'll give you a great example about three months ago you know Kathy and my daughter came to me and they said you know you're you're really being a dick and I was like <laughs> oh, I'm not Why are we no I'm not and they said no you, there's there's like a, a negative buzz you know when you're around and and I started thinking about it and you know I when I'm home which is probably 50 or 60 percent of the time I want to have a good image. My daughter's just staying with us temporarily while she works and goes on trips. She's going to New Zealand at the end of the year. But uh, you know, my immediate reaction was was negative, and then I started thinking about it. And I and and my wife says, "So, you know, what do you do first thing in the morning?" And I said, "Well, I I look at the news." And she said, "Stop looking at the news." And I did, and it changed everything. It just completely changed everything. So the simple answer of how I got my way out is what you just said. Like, look at the negative things going on in my life and do my best to heal them or dissipate them, bounce them out. Give it to God. I mean, that's what I mean, whatever you want to call it. But just uh, I'm going through tremendous worry about my daughter being in Portugal, but she's 24 years old. When I was 24 years old. I should have been dead. I mean, uh, most of my friends from earlier really didn't think I had survived those years. Because remember, we were doing some pretty crazy ass shit yeah. uh, stuff. And um, you could say shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in a way, in a way, I'm really glad I did that crazy stuff. I mean, you know, following the Grateful Dead and hitchhiking and in. You know, I, I I had some some family issues young. My when my mom passed away, my stepfather pretty much kicked me out when I was fifteen. So I went and lived with my uncle, and they couldn't handle me either because I was such a just a dirt bag. I mean, I never did anything wrong, but I mean, like walking into the house and throwing up on the entryway. You know, it probably wasn't my aunt's favorite thing. Right. Yeah. So uh, I I really needed to just kind of fly off on my own, and I know you guys did that too. I, there was a lot of adventure, and I, I want to hear about those adventures too. But it was the best decision I ever made. I mean, the fact that I survived it, I thank God for. But yeah. I, I don't want to interrupt you. Well, I, I just, you know, I, I look at a lot of people. I did all of my misbehaving in my 20s, and I had nothing. Nothing, not a dime. I mean, I had my backpack, and I had my sleeping bag, and I, you know, I'd pull into a town and get a job at a restaurant and sleep in the park up at a tree in a hammock and, and hopefully, you know, meet some lovely female waitress that would take me home for a while. And But I remember the most amazing feeling was knowing that I could just take my duffel bag and put it on my back and stick out my thumb. And and it was different from homelessness now. And I, you know, I, I feel sorry for a lot of people now, but the, the difference was that as, as soon as I got to a town, 
I got a job. I went to every restaurant. It didn't, didn't matter what I, I did because all I wanted to do was eat and have fun and party and buy... Get a little and, pocket change. And exactly right. Yeah. And uh, I remember just thinking how amazingly awesome it was for a while. And then I realized, you know, when I was like 28, 29, I was in Aspen, actually in Denver, and uh, and and that's when my lovely wife came into my life and I realized that I I don't need a lot but I want to be comfortable in my older age and because I had played so long it was really easy for me to put my nose to the grindstone and work and I was very fortunate with the the jobs that I had and ending up with where I am now it's you guys met in Colorado great story it, it, was, it was so amazing so you know people talk about love at first sight um I was working at a restaurant, and uh, here comes this gorgeous woman in this polka dot dress with a whole bunch of people. And I, I was a waiter, and I walked over to her, and I said, Hi, what, you know, can I help you? And she said, Well, I'm Kathy Forbes. I'm running a destination management group, and we need to be in and out relatively quickly, and I hear you have a great buffet. You know, she had already done her research, and I said, Yeah, you know, we have a really great buffet. And I don't know why I said it, because most people would go, Who the heck cares I said and we even have cottage cheese on the, the on the buffet and she's like oh my god I love cottage cheese it's one of my favorite things I'm like yeah so right over there ma'am and uh, I went back to the waiter that I was friends with and I said that's for me right there right I knew it right then and about five minutes later she came over and when Kathy's upset she has this wonderful look on her face where you know you're you're in trouble and she said um, by the way there's no cottage cheese on the buffet and she was pissed so I said oh my god I, so I, <laughs> I went back to the kitchen and I got one of those 10 gallon buckets of cottage cheese and I brought the whole thing out and I put it in front of her and she just started laughing I said here's your cottage cheese ma'am and you know we started and then she noticed my, my name tag and it said you know Craig Alec Tiburon California because it's where you, you grew up and she said, well, I'm Kathy Forbes, I, I'm from Mill Valley. And it was like, oh, my God. I mean, so, you know, five-minute conversation. And, and then I said, you know, um, my niece is having her first birthday this Saturday. Would you like to go to a one-year-old's birthday party? I thought, what an innocuous way to ask for a date, right? It's like right. putting her on the spot at all. And right. our first date never ended. And we moved up to Aspen shortly thereafter. And on Halloween night that year, six months after we met, uh, we had done some mind-altering things, and uh, we were running through the streets of Aspen on Halloween night. I was a lion tamer, and she was a lioness, and, and I said, I've never been happier. Let's get married. And so we did, six months later, and 33 years, and three children, and problems, but yeah. everybody has that. Yes. So. Yeah, there's a woman that is in my life right now that we dated in 20s and we're just sort of exploring what's what we want even nothing you know anyway part of what we spoke about is if you do partner with someone partnership is like looking at a challenge together yep. and having that goal be together which is not splitting apart it's you know we know couples that keep all their finances separate and, and I can't even imagine being in a loving partnership, best friend relationship and not absolutely sharing everything. I, we had a, a little bit of a disagreement the other night. I, I'm a huge electric train collector. And, um, really? I, I have, so you have a set here? I do. We'll have to check that out before I bounce. It's insane. Uh. So I, um, <laughs> this car arrived, and it arrived down at the post office box, and I come home from a trip, and I was like, oh, so did any mail come? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and I said, is it a big box or a little box? She said, both. And she said, is it a train? And, and something in her voice, because I was super tired, super, super, super tired, I, I got defensive. I was like, well, you don't think I should buy a train? And she pointed out the fact that I have trains coming up my ear, and I don't even know where a lot of them, you'll see. I mean, it's, it's, it's an addiction. I I'm not even joking. There should be trainaholics. Um, I'm still glad I bought the car. Do you go to that place up in Nevada that's right by the 101? Mm, oh, it's closed. Really? Yeah, they closed. Dolls, trains, dolls. Yeah. And, yeah when, oh. I first, when I first moved back, I thought, yay, because 
Trade stores are all closed. Everything, everything, everything I have to get is online now. Damn, they had the best collection of miniatures. They did. And, oh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I mean, that's the sad part, Greg. All the all the hobby shops, and I I, I remember when I was 12 years old, I would get on the ferry. And I'd go over to San Francisco. Think about the difference between then and now. So this is 1972. Yeah. I'm taking the ferry over, and I'm getting on the, the, the bus, and then I get on the J car to go to this insane... I can still smell that train store. The oil, the ozone, and, and all that. And and now it's all online. And that's what she says. She says, just disconnect eBay. And I really should. It's like I, I, I see something, and I'm like, oh, I got it. Get it! Well, all right, so this is, if you're open to a spark of an idea, there's a friend of mine, and what he and his wife have is a budgetary amount that up to that amount, they don't have to check in with each other. But that amount and over, then it's a joint. I'm so far over that amount. <laughs> well, no, but here's what I'm saying from now on. I know, I That know, might know. save some... White hairs. Well, really, and, and I, I hate to even put this on film because you say after I say it's okay, she's going to go back and look at it and say, you said that. <laughs> I mean, I truly need nothing. It's just, and and in all fairness, some of the stuff I, I have, I built myself because I, I love it. I, I'm, you know, she's always talking about how uh, not mechanical I am around the house, but then she says you could put a, a brass train car together that looks I mean, I'll show you. So it's, I think it's all about priorities. And my job is I have to be on, so incredibly on. So I've been wondering, what is a wine ambassador? <laughs> it is a really um, pretentious name for a brainwashed Jackson family in a good way employee. Um, so uh, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the whole background because I think it's really important to kind of answer that question. Um, I, was, I was working in restaurants, obviously, from my hitchhiking days. And uh, after I met Kathy, we moved back to San Francisco. I was working at the Hyatt, and then I was working at Neptune's Palace. And uh, I was the general manager, and they hated me, and I hated them. I mean, it was just really a bad situation. My first son had been born, so I really wasn't spending much time at home. And this uh, lovely lady, Susan Holmesy, kept coming in. She worked for Wine Warehouse, and, and she was always smiling. And uh, and I said, I want your job. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm done being a master a restaurant manager, and I'm done working for this schmuck. And uh, uh, I shouldn't have said that. That's all right. Um, Some schmucks exist. Yeah, well, he, he is. He was. So it happened that a territory in the, in the, the county that I grew up in was open, Marin. So it was like, oh, my God. Um, so I went to work for Wine Warehouse, and uh, it was very different back then. They basically gave me 100 accounts and said, go to work. Nothing, no trading, no nothing. So uh, it was a year and a half of figuring it out, but I was motivated because I got to drive my little Toyota with 200,000 miles on it and listen to Judas Priest between accounts and, and uh, have a good old time, and I was selling really good wines. So you have a hundred accounts that you're selling wine to. Correct. Like, are they restaurants? Restaurants, retail. Oh, okay. So uh, you, you know, you have to. The, the first thing you have to go ahead. The liquor store in Mill Valley. I did. did yes, the one downtown. Yeah. 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 So um, I'm doing this for a couple of years, and uh, I want to. I want to make more money. So uh, Southern Wine and Spirits. Uh, I, I do this interview and uh, even passed my drug test. It was awesome. I was going to start the very next day and um, a friend of mine called me and said, you know, Jackson, Ken, Jess Jackson is starting his own distribution company in California. And I've been selling against Kendall Jackson for years and I was sick of it because I wanted to sell Kendall Jackson. So um, being the honest moron that I am, I called Southern and I said, you know, I got one more interview I have to do. And they're like, no, if you don't start tomorrow, you don't have a job. And I was like, well, then no, I don't start tomorrow and I don't have a job. Because I really knew that's one of those things in life where you just decide you're going to do it. And it was scary as hell, Greg, because it was two weeks of interviews and I didn't have a job. I'd already given notice. I was completely unemployed. And, got kids. and I have one have kid, two, have one, one kid at the time, time, and I think okay. maybe Kathy was pregnant. Okay. But we both discussed it, and we both realized that this was the, the thing to do, and I got the job. I was the, the regal rep in Napa, um, which was super fun. We bought a house in Yachtville when it was a nothing, 
um, and just kicked ass. And, and, and I would love to take the credit for it, but the wines I was selling were amazing. So just Jackson, Jackson family wines is a Sonoma based wine company. And their, their message to me was, we know you're not going to sell many Sonoma wines in Napa. We just need a presence. We need somebody going in and, and selling the wine. And, you know, I did really well. And, and the reason I did well is because, first of all, we lived in, in Yachtville. And all the restaurant owners lived there. So they were my friends. I mean, they would, we'd party together and, and do this whole thing. And it was a totally different world back then. It was a much friendlier place, Napa. So you're talking now. 80s, 90s? Yeah, so it would have been 1996, 97, okay. 98. Okay. Um, and we owned the place. It was freaking awesome, eating out at the French Laundry a couple of times and, and just having this great life. And Kathy was happy, and we had a very best friend neighbor, and our everything was great. And what happens? I throw a monkey wrench into it. I had wanted to move back to the south for many years, and I, I asked my company if I could be moved to Tennessee because I love East Tennessee. And they said, no, but South Carolina is open. And that's kind of how Jackson Family works. You start one place, and you move up, and you move up, and you move up. So Jackson, Kentville Jackson is selling wines national oh number one selling chardonnay in in the world actually it's wow. it's pretty it's pretty and it's great wine too it that's my good. wine commercial well, so when you were in marin did you ever um was avenue grill in mill valley the restaurant i'm sure i called on them um the, the i i don't remember avenue grill specifically but i had all the mill all the sausalito accounts the mill valley accounts so I, i'm sure i did because the gentleman who was in charge of the wine for avenue grill like kendall jackson was a big favorite of his and i know the chardonnay was through the roof and they even had a cab i think that was oh and it still is i mean you know and i'm not here to talk about how great my company is but it is great yeah when you're when you're owned by a, a family and and their basic principle is the land is the most important thing, the products you have are amazing, and that that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. So, right, so you go to South go Carolina. to South Carolina. Kathy hates it. Kathy's a California hippie. I love it because I'm kind of a redneck and I'm driving around in my big muscle cars. I went through this muscle car phase and I had this. Fucking ridiculous! Two ridiculous cars: a a, a four fifty four sixty seven Camaro with a blower, nice. and uh, well, nice, <laughs> and a and a sixty nine SS El Camino with a four fifty four totally pumped engine. I remember driving through the streets of South, and it was a hundred degrees. And I have I have my slacks on, and I have my white shirt, and I'm going to meet my friend Christian. And this Camaro is open piped, blower, and you could hear the windows almost breaking as I'm driving downtown. Just to give you an idea how South Carolina is, and one New Year's morning I was in my El Camino, such a redneck dumb shit, and and I just I'm sitting at the Five Points you know intersection, and there's nobody around, and I think I'm just gonna light this bad boy up, and I mean it. Whew, smoke and screaming tires and well, boy no I don't do that no it was just straight ahead okay. and big fat meat tires yeah, yeah. and um, so of course I get pulled over immediately and the first cop pulls behind me and sits there for a minute and then the second cop and this New Year's Day I'm toast they're going to take me to jail exhibition of speed blah 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 were you and, inebriated? no hell no okay. I never drink I drive so the cop walks up and he's a big southern southern cop and the other one walks up and they're kind of just talking back and forth and i had my hand here and i had my license ready and i said i have absolutely no excuse gentlemen and they said why don't you open up that hood and let us take a look under there <laughs> and so i got out and i thought maybe there's a glimmer of hope and then I was showing them the engine. I was showing them all the cool stuff that I because I had built this car, not me personally, right. but I had it. I had it put together, and they were just like, "Well, now listen, don't you be doing that downtown, and you have a real good New Year's Day." And I was like, "Yeah," but that's I loved that. I loved the 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 southern, and it's not that way anymore. The the the. the I had great friends in the south, genuinely really good people, and unfortunately. 
we had to send our kids to, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, we had to send our kids to a private school because the public school system was pretty bad. And um, the women at this school were, um, as I described them to Kathy, big fish in a little tiny fishbowl. They'd known each other all their lives. They were made up at 7 o'clock in the morning. And my wife doesn't wear makeup. I mean, so she'd show up and, you know, always hear about the Southern hospitality. I had no problem. I guess guys are different. But I watched one day when Kathy was dropping off the kids and she walked up to this group of seven or eight women and they looked at her and they closed the circle physically. It was just like, whoa. So uh, she was not super happy there. She got involved in a lot of different things. She was involved with the ballet. We were actually in the Nutcracker, big, huge 5,000 person performance. I was on stage with beautiful ballerinas. I wasn't dancing. <laughs> but um, so I, I realized Kathy hated it. So I put my hand up to move to New York and they happily moved me to New York and immediately she was happy. So I spent uh, 12 years in New Manhattan. York, Manhattan, God, and I the whole was well, dude. Fucking love Manhattan. There's, there's no place like it. Yeah. And, and the food scene, the, yeah. and I was there at the prime time from, from 2004. Well, we had a rough time in 2008, 2009. Yeah. But uh, I got to, to be part of the biggest and best restaurants in New York. And then I eventually had the whole East Coast, which was super fun. But the, the thing about New York is, you know, here there's probably 20 distributors, wine distributors. I don't know for sure. I mean, somebody's probably going to watch this video and write and say, he doesn't know what to fuck he's talking <laughs> But there aren't that many. In New York, there's hundreds, literally hundreds. There's the regular distributors and then the, the gray market people. So these accounts don't need to see it. They don't need to see another wine guy. So it takes a lot. And when they say, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. It is the truth. So for the first year I was, you know, it was funny because I, I had long, super long hair, ponytail. And so I, I kind of played up the California shtick, you know, and, and, um, Fortunately, I had really, really great wines to sell. So, cut the story short, uh, New York was fantastic. And uh, by the time 2015, 16 rolled around, I, as I was getting older, I realized I really didn't want to spend any more winters in New York. In the summer, it's 110 degrees riding the subway. No bueno. I mean, but Kathy's like, this is great. I've got great friends. We lived in the Hudson Valley, absolutely gorgeous on the Hudson River. And you know, we go into the city and have these absolutely mind-blowing dinners at the very best restaurants in the in, in the city, and, and our kids were still there. So, but I couldn't handle it anymore. I, uh, to, to give you an example, this this is how you know you've made it in New York. And for a while, it was fun, but it kind of got you know. So you walk into a restaurant. If they like you, they'll take five or six seconds to even look up, and they'll kind of do this little get the fuck out of here. That's when you know you've made it. And I'm, I'm not kidding. That is, you know, from then on, they're going to be giving you orders. Otherwise, if they look up at you and just look back down at your paper, you might as well just leave. So it was a great experience. But uh, in 2016, I said, I really need to come home. I need to come back to, you know, Kathy had this house or her parents had passed away and we'd been renting it out. And we still have our, our place up in Yachtville, which is, um, it's also rented out. And that was just too small for us to move into. So we moved into this place and uh, they said, so what do you want to do? You know, and, and what company says that, you know? And I said, I, I want to represent Stone Street. I think it's the winery that needs the attention. It's, uh, in my opinion, the premier winery. And we have Fierate, La Coya, Cardinal, La Hora. We have more 100-point scores with one of our wineries than any wine in the world. But I think Stone Street is the one that needed attention. And, and it was just Jackson's favorite winery, too. Well, maybe Verite at $400 a bottle might have been <laughs> his, his uh, favorite. But um, they, they amazingly said yes. So for the last four and a half, five years, uh, I am representing this absolutely mind-blowing wine. We have, you know, seven different varietals that I take around the, the country. And um, my job, basically, is to go into a city, work with the distributor people, do wine dinners, uh, and do educational presentations. I'm on the education team for Jackson Family Wines. So that's my official job, and my subtitle is 
Uh, wine ambassador. Wine ambassador. Why, and I tell people, I, I don't even have that on my card. I, I just, I shouldn't have even said that to you because I really do think it's pretentious. I mean, when I think of a wine ambassador, it's like, <laughs> you schmuck. Well, that's the signature of your email. Yeah, well, that's my, I'm going to change that right now. <laughs> um, all right, so you. I, I didn't even realize that. I'm going to change that right <laughs> Fuck. Um, so. You're doing United States? United States, Canada. Um, I just talked to, we had our national sales meeting recently, and I talked to uh, our international guy, and, and I said, you know, I would love to go to Japan. I'd love to go to some of these other places. And, you know, Stone Street is, right, is starting to become one of the top, top wineries at Jackson Family Wines, and it's, it's been a transition. I mean, um, the pricing on the wine has been artificially low for some reason, and I don't know why. I think they were just concentrating on Napa and thinking maybe Sonoma just takes too much work to convince the average wine drinker. But, I, you know, from my experience in the field, I love putting my, my Sonoma cab against cabs three times the price from Napa. And I'm not saying better by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of a different style, and, and the quality is insane. And the mountain... And this is where, I shouldn't say this because this is my secret. Everybody thinks that I'm a great wine salesperson. The wine sells itself. The wine is absolutely mind-blowingly good. The story is super important because there's truly a story behind the wine. And the Mountain Vineyard, and I heard Jess Jackson on many times, many occasions, say, this is the premier Mountain Vineyard in the entire Jackson family portfolio. And that includes Diamond, Spring, Veter, Howell. We have wineries in Italy. We have wineries in France, South America, South Africa. I just went down to South Africa last year to visit one of our, our facilities, Capensis, down there. And, and, and I, I pinch myself every day that I made the decision to come to work for this family because, like I said, no matter what I'm showing, we have like 54 wineries now, no matter what I'm showing, because I was in Kentucky last week and I was showing our... Tenuta de Arceno um, Tuscan wine. And it's freaking great. And when you sit in front of a jaded wine buyer, and these guys see people all day long, and they look up after tasting seven wines, and they say, wow, every single one of those wines is great. So I'm very lucky because it makes it look like I'm doing a great job. But the wine's doing it for me, actually. Well... I'm sure you've got some character and personality that help the ambiance of the situation. Well, hopefully, for, for now. Because, for now. like, you know. It's fun. A schmuck could go in and not sell a bottle. That, no, that is absolutely true. No, I, I do think that's true. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a schmuck, but I'm certainly not. You know, like, like being on the education team, you know, I, I work with people that have spent literally their entire life studying wine. And I have the utmost respect for them because I mean pretty much everybody on my team you could put any glass of wine in front of them these are master psalms there's what 250 in the world and to be on the same team with these people is is humbling it really is and to see that they're so genuinely good and wonderful people is also uh, makes getting up and going to work every single day great do you think that the um fact that nothing compares to Napa wine is changing like I hear Tri-Valley has put a lot of energy into educating people this is great wine down in Central Valley now there seems to be a big push I think Napa has done the and we have a lot of Napa wineries so I, I respect Napa Napa has done a phenomenal job of marketing they are king because of the marketing they've done um, I'll tell you a, a, a very brief story that'll kind of um, show you how I feel about that. So I, I'm going to um, the same circle of friends I was talking about before that Robert, who passed away, was part of. One of my friends, Joe, made it big in life, made tons and tons of money. You know, just he lives in Santa Barbara. He's just an awesome, awesome guy. And he invited me to his birthday party. And so I grab a magnum of my Rockfall 2,200-foot elevation Cabernet Sauvignon that is freaking badass good. 
So I show up, and, and you know the kind of friends, Greg, just like you and, and Mike and everybody. If we do something stupid, you'll, you know, you'll let us know. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, so here I am, the wine guy, and, everybody's, and, and I walk in, and there's two bottles of Screaming Eagle. Now, these are $3,000 each for $750 bottle. There's a Magnum of Harlan, which I can't even imagine how much it was, probably ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, some first-growth Bordeaux. I mean, it's, just, it's insane what's at this birthday party. Wow. And I'm showing up with a Magnum of Sonoma Cabernet. So they're all just like, you loser. You know, one of them said, just tattoo an L on your head. The wine guy shows up with Sonoma Cab. <laughs> I didn't say shit, you know. I, I walked over, and I, I decanted my wine, and I mingled for a while, and then I... I went over and I poured some of my Rockfall in a glass and I poured some Screaming Eagle in a glass and I walked over to Joe and I said, Joe, which one's the Screaming Eagle? And he had no idea. And he didn't want to guess because he didn't want to guess. I don't know. I don't know. I've been drinking, you know. Am I saying it's better than Screaming Eagle? By no stretch of the imagination. But I can tell you from my experience of calling on thousands and thousands of customers and buying Napa cab to taste next to mine that Sonoma is every bit as good as Napa if it's grown in the right place and that's the key you know you you just can't grow wine in the wrong place but the the amazing Napa has valleys yeah but these are mountain fruits my, mine is all mountain fruit literally. right but what I'm saying is like just the fact that it's growing in Napa like Napa must create some mediocre wines they they do and and they are incredibly high priced i mean and, and i'm not going to mention any names right, but right. there are some big names that are absolute plunk and i mean you can spend 200 dollars on them and they they just i i, I i'll tell i can't even tell you the story but suffice <laughs> it to say that somebody was giving me a really hard time at one of my wine dinners and he was talking about a certain big name not the cab and this really did happen and he was drunk, so that's probably why it happened. And, you know, oh, this particular wine is so much better than yours, and the dinner's over. So I walked to the back of the restaurant, I knew the restaurateur, and, and they had a bottle, empty bottle of the wine that he really likes. And I, I just, I said, can you put some of that by the glass Blackstone Merlot into this bottle? So the eight Blackstone Merlot is $8. And they poured it in, and totally, probably not legal but i walked back out to the guy and i said you know it was so fun having you here tonight and you know uh, i just wanted to worry you a little bit of your favorite kind of cab here and he's like oh. um takes a big sip yeah now that's the real deal it was like this guy thought an eight dollar merlot was the wine that he was talking about so um the answer to your question is you will see in the next I think 10 years, people realizing that in particular Knights Valley, which is Sonoma, and Alexander Valley, where I am, premier. And we're going to get an AVA for Stone Street, a sub-AVA, the first sub-AVA of What's the Alexander. That is California. It's a, it's a rec, the California recognizing where we grow our wine as an individual unique area. So Rutherford is an AVA in the Napa Valley. Right now, Alexander Valley... I believe is the entire AVA. We have petitioned the state of California to realize that our vineyards start at 400 feet, but actually most of the wine is actually from 1,000 feet to 2,400 feet. And it's clearly not Alexander Valley. I mean, that's that's not Valley floor. Right. We think, um, I'm, I don't want to jinx anything, but it's uh, the petition is in, and we have uh, brought in some other growers in the area because the more the better. And and in the wine industry, you really you get along pretty much. Everybody does. There's some people that you hate, but I won't mention That's them. That's true with everything. That's true with everything. So I think we'll have it, and it's going to be called Pocket Peak. It's going to be super cool, and and it's going to be pretty much it's all in the bottle. It'll be Stone Street Pocket Peak AVA. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon. What does that do for the industry? What it does for us is it makes people realize that it is a very special place. So it's not necessarily for the industry. It would be the benefit for us because the consumers that are really into wine are looking for that kind of thing. The uniqueness. Well, yeah. And and most people, they'll buy a Napa Cabernet, but they'd much rather buy a Mount Vitor or a Rutherford or a... Uh, Diamond Mountain, Spring Mountain, so because clearly it's different. It's 
And, and you know, that would be a really fun thing to do if, if you wanted to come up and do a tasting because the thing about our mountain that's so special, and this is why Jeff said this mountain is, is the most amazing place in California, and it truly is, where else could you grow 100-point red wine? And, and our Verite comes off this mountain. This is the, it's very expensive, unbelievably good. And the Verite vineyards are literally a stone's throw from Chardonnay vineyards that produce 98-point scores. That's unheard of. You just don't grow Chardonnay and Cabernet of that quality together because Chardonnay requires cool. Cabernet requires warmer days, still cool nights because you want that acid. But this mountain, it's the Mycomas Mountains. Does this sound too much like a commercial? No. Okay. This so, is what I was kind of hoping for. Good. So we're in the Mayakamas Mountains, the very same mountains that run through Napa, Diamond, Spring, Vita, right there. It's just those are the premier Howell Mountain as well. Those are the four, you know, other great areas, Tokalon, Vineyard, all that kind of stuff. But that's actually up kind of on the valley floor. Um, all of those, not Howell, Howell is on the, on the other side of the valley and face westward. But the other ones face eastward, and they're in the Napa Valley. We're 27 miles north, and we face westward. Same mountain range. We have direct access to the Pacific Ocean. So the fog rolls in every night. We get a 50-degree diurnal temperature swing. It'll be 95 degrees during the day and then 50, 49, something like that at night, freezing cold. Perfect for grapes. You get the ripeness, but you get the acid. And, and being a child of the 60s, acid is very, very important in wine. And that's one of the things that makes Stone Street so special uh, we also pick at a little lower bricks level. Now, just to go even deeper, we purchased this mountain from Chevron. We, the family, purchased <laughs> this uh, purchased this mountain from Chevron, and they had planned on building big McMansions up there, and, and you know, twelve, fourteen acre plots for growing wine. This is a extremely seismic active area. So right now there's 30% of Sonoma is actually powered by the geysers on the top of the mountain. The road that runs past our vineyards is called Geysers Road. Every day there's seismic activity. In fact, one of the vineyards is called Broken Road because the road that runs up to the top breaks every year from seismic activity. Mm -hmm. So Chevron realized they could not build these million billion dollar houses because they'd be shaken down. Mm -hmm. So they put the mountain up for sale in 1995. So their nightmare turned into our complete dream come true because all that activity, the seismic activity, this earth, this land had gone through a blender. We have more soil types than all of France. We have 31 identified soil types on this mountain. We have different elevations and we face westward. So every single elevation change, every single soil change, every single um, fog level change affects that particular vineyard makes the job for the winemaker extremely hard. So of the 5,500 acres, we've got 800 planted, 287 blocks, all vinified separately. I mean, think about that. So they call the pick on the block, they crush the fruit, they vinify it, that particular block, so that the winemaker can taste what that tastes like, and with our estate wines, blend it with 10 or 12 other vineyards, the best of the best, that are still Cabernet, 100%, or real close to it, Chardonnay, whatever, that all taste completely different. And this is what my love to do when people come up. We have like seven single vineyard Cabernets that you know are made exactly the same way, same oak, same everything, but different parts of the mountain, and they couldn't taste more different. I mean, it's, it's truly mind-blowing. And that's what makes Stone Street so special. It's the complexity of the wine, it's the concentration of fruit. I think Silver Oak probably gets eight tons an acre. A great winery. They're literally across the street from us on the Alexander Valley floor. We get maybe two, two and a half tons an acre. Tiny berries, concentrated fruit. So we get a much more concentrated wine, more tannic wine. And, and this is what I like about it because I'm an old world fan. The Italians make the best wine in the world. The French make the second best. And we're following right along. Um, but uh, we, we, also, we also pick at a lower bricks level. So our friends in Napa like to pick at 20, that's the sugar level in the grapes. So it's like they're picking at 26, 27. We're usually picking around 22, 23 because we don't want that super high alcohol and we don't want that huge fruit forward characteristic. People love that. I mean, and, and that's fine. They, they like fruit forward. That's great. There's a lot of wines for that. 
we're looking for, and I hate to use the word serious because it makes it sound like they're not serious, and clearly they are serious. But I just I like our style of of, uh, of winemaking a little bit better. So that's that's why I love my job because I get to tell the story and, and get carried away. But anyway, sorry. That's nothing to apologize for. Right, a couple questions. One, so what's the name of the Stone Street Winery? Stone Street. And when you say like we pick our fruit at this sugar level, you mean Stone Street? Um, well, it, here's the cool thing because, and I'm glad you brought that up. Nobody in our company could do anything without the vineyard guys, and we have a crew that's been with us for years and years and years. They are the best in the business. So, what what happens is our vineyard manager Gabe will go up and he will work with the winemaker. And you have to be a vineyard. You have to be a winemaker that spends time in the vineyard. When you have five thousand five hundred acres, eight hundred planted, you're not sitting in your office. You're up on the mountain watching out for rattlesnakes and bears and all kinds of critters and so a, a great example i was up with christina recently up on the mountain the the she's the new winemaker at stone street and we're looking at the grapes and we're looking at all this fruit on the ground and i'm like man that's a hell of a lot of fruit for a two ton an acre vineyard and she said yeah we drop crop we we want the grapes that are on the vines to really get that extra little push from the vine and I didn't mention this, but mountain vineyards, the stress level is extremely high. Stress is what you're looking for. You don't want, you know, it's, it's funny when you drive through the Napa Valley and you're looking at these beautiful vines putting out all these leaves. It's beautiful, but that's not what we're looking for. We want the vine to think that it's in serious jeopardy of dying. We take beautiful care of them, but we will wait to the very last minute to get it water because we want all the energy in the plant to be making the best grapes. We don't care about leaves. We don't care about shooting vines. You're going to get smaller berries, but you're going to get extremely high quality. And when you think about it, it's nature. What you want is the very best tasting grapes so the birds eat your grapes and spread the seeds because that's what pro procreating or creating the, the, the species, and that's how the grapevines spread. So we've taken advantage of that. We've taken advantage of nature, and we, if there was a pita for grapes, we'd be in big trouble because we stress our vines out big time. We have three reservoirs on the mountain, and we water them only when it's necessary. So um, the, the quality of the fruit is exceptionally good. The uh, the pick is called by the winemaker and the vineyard guy, and we are so lucky that we have the ownership that we do. They don't have to pick the whole vineyard at once. They can pick two rows because the sugar level is right, the, the skin color is right. Um, we just brought in some of our Sauvignon Blanc last week, and I was up there uh, with with Christina, and we were tasting the grapes. I, I bet I ate $50 worth of grapes because they were so incredibly good. But the, the pick is called, and, and then the fruit comes in, but it's all so planned out. It is, And when you have that many vineyards, it's, it's tough, because especially if four or five vineyards are ready to pick at once, you're working a lot of hours. And that's the thing about our team. They're the best, totally the best. So does the family have a team of pickers that they're able to keep employed year-round? Pretty much full-time. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And and not only that, um, you know, about five, I can't even remember how long time passes so slowly, but we realized a while back that labor is going to get harder and harder. And we wanted, and here here's the thing about Jackson family, nobody leaves. I mean, I've been there 27 years and I'm not abnormal. No, no wine company is even close to that. Most of the average tenure is probably three or four years and then you move on to something else. Same thing with our vineyard guys, but we wanted to make sure. So a while back, and I, again, I don't want to get myself in trouble with the exact date, but we retroactively paid them for, I believe, two years at, at the higher wage that they, they got because we realized we don't want them going anywhere. We just had a guy retire after 35 years. I mean, think about that. It's, that is hardcore, and that is one hell of a job, but you need somebody up there all the time on this particular mountain. You've got bears walking through you've got all kinds of stuff happening so it's a it is a very team oriented family oriented 
um, company. I, I, I still get goosebumps going up on that mountain. I'll take you up there. Right. I'd love to go. My eldest would probably like to go, too. She loves going to wineries. And Let's put it on the book. All right. Um, so Napa and Sonoma have wines that are 100-point rated. Does Tri-Valley or Central Valley have any wines that compete in that area? You know, I'm not a big fan of Central Valley wines, and I know there's some good ones. I'm not, there's, there's, um, uh, for me personally, it doesn't get cool enough. It, unless they're acidifying the wines, it's just going to be flabby. Uh, like San Luis Obispo is coming on massively. Um, I think some of the cabs and, and the quality of the wine for price ratio is fabulous. I personally love Monterey. I think, and it's really, really relatively inexpensive. I think Monterey Chardonnays are crisp and refreshing. You know, a lot of people talk about over-oaked California Chardonnays, and, and they're right. I mean, I, you know, you, you, and, and this, this is when it gets all kind of cork-dorky, and, and this is where you need lots of acid in the wine if you're going to put it in oak and malolactic and all that stuff. Um, but the thing that I'm finding in the market now is people are liking unoaked Chardonnays. Now, interestingly enough, Stone Street Chardonnay has, first of all, I'll say this, it does not taste like it has any oak at all. In fact, I've had third level master psalms say, I'll just give you the percentage, they'll say maybe 15 to 20% new French oak for the six to eight months that they think that the wine is in oak. And it's actually a lot more than that. And it's all fabulous French oak. But with Stone Street, because we have those huge diurnal temperature swings, we have so much acid that we need the oak to tame it down. And then we do the secondary malolactic fermentation. We inoculate the wine and it changes the malic. What's a malolactic? Malolactic fermentation. After the wine is fermented, you, you inoculate it and it changes the malic bitter acid to lactic acid, which What's, is butter. How, how do you inoculate it? Yeast, some kind of I don't know. That's that's yeah, the science. Science, yeah, add, yeah, okay. add an ingredient. Um, and I, just to digress a little bit, we're very unique with Stone Street because we do not add yeast when we first start the ferment. Now, most probably ninety nine percent do, even if it's native yeast. We don't. The grapes start to ferment on their own, and and we couldn't figure it out. And and uh, there was a story about I was actually with Lisa when some smartass said, "You guys have a dirty winery. You have to, the, the yeast is floating around." It was like you must be a first. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> anyway, so we sent uh, off samples to UC Davis for a couple of years in a row because we couldn't figure it out either. And and if your your yeast strain isn't strong enough, the fermentation stops halfway through, and you're done. Everybody's fired. Kidding, but kind of. Right, right, right. So no one um, likes to see a yeah. uh, harvest go into the sewer. So uh, UC Davis got back to us, and they were like, "We we don't you know know how you're doing it, but 75 percent of the yeast in this wine is unidentifiable in the world. So it's unique to Whoa. this mountain. It's another magic thing about this mountain. That's crazy. That's it is like crazy. I, I learned sourdough is unique to San Francisco because of the. The, the temperature and the climate. Well, and the living organism, yeah, is only in the San Francisco area. And so, so how much do you think of, generally speaking, is really intelligent, educated people speaking of wine, and how many are drunken idiots claiming an $8 Merlot is the most wonderful thing? You know, um... And and I and I say this with uh, you know with caution because I think most Americans are are very ignorant and not not stupid or just they just don't know. Uh, I will tell you in my experience that for the most part, there's very few people that know very much about wine, and I think it's different in Europe because wine is so much of their culture. Um, I, I I'll. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble telling you these stories, but, uh, you know, I think I'll tell you this one. So we have a wine called Fremark Abbey. It is freaking awesome. It's been around since the 1800s. There's a couple of vineyards that we do, Cabernet Vineyards, the Sycamore, and the and the Boucher. Oh, it's the Kendall Jackson family in this industry. Uh, started in 1982. 
But we purchased this winery in 2004. It was, it was in started, serious. Right? It was in serious need of an injection of of, of capital, and yeah. and it was one of the best purchases we've ever made because they had a library going back to '67, and the wines are phenomenal. So, um, but a, a friend of mine works at a super high end steakhouse, and you know these six white, oops, these six older gentlemen. Um, Whiteys. Racist. No. They, yeah. yeah, they come in and, and they're like, yeah, you know, they're swinging their big old units around and trying to impress everybody. And and uh, they say, so, you know, we need a nice big bottle of Kev. We need a Magnum or two on the table. You know, what do you suggest? And and my friend said, well, I mean, the the Fremark Abbey, we got some special Magnums of Fremark Abbey, Boucher, I think it was, which is as good as anything in Napa, period, end of story. Um, and then they're like, oh, you know, I don't know. And, and these are these are guys that are pretending like they know about wine. And if they'd known anything about wine, they would have known that the, the Boucher was so oh, much better than the crap that they picked, right? The crap that they picked was the wine that I was referring to earlier, which, again, I will not mention, but it is an extremely well-known Cabernet from Napa, Sauvignon, uh, from Napa uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. And they, they all just did a little discussion, and then they said, no, we'll take the... Other one, yeah, because they're in their opinion that other one has so much prestige that they want people, even though it's swill and it is, it's just swill. They want people to look at that bottle on their table, and you can just see the way they're just sitting. They don't know that anybody that knows anything really about wine is looking at them and saying, "God, those idiots just spent seven hundred dollars on a magnum of that stuff." And so, to answer your question, I think there's a lot of pretentiousness of one other quick story i was in a, a retail account in, in arizona super nice store unbelievable i mean there was harlan there which is my favorite napa cap besides our lacoya uh and there was some just phenomenal phenomenal wine there and i'm talking to the guy and up pulls this corvette and the 63, 64 year old white guy gets up. i don't know why i keep saying white i sound like a racist i'm white too so i could make fun of myself <laughs> Um, and he gets out, and I look at the buyer, and I said, so here's the deal. He's going to walk in. Within one, maybe two minutes, we're going to know how big his bottle collection is, how big his wine cellar is. And we're also going to know how fabulous he is and that, uh, you know, he just, uh, he's just a super groovy guy and about his Corvette. And then he's going to ask about a certain wine that we all know very well, that we all know is not what it used to be. Verbatim. It was yeah. it was unbelievable. He came in and he's yeah. like, "Yeah, you know, I got I got another thousand bottles to put in, uh, you know, for my wine collection." And uh, yeah, you like my Corvette? It's pretty pretty badass. Uh, and and he's looking around the place and he looks over at the Harlan and you don't see Harlan in retail stores. It's just not available. Um, it doesn't even bother to ask about it. It looks at some other things and then he says, "So where's your?" And yeah. we cracked. Uh, he didn't understand. Why we were laughing, but it, it was just like it was so incredibly funny. It was like, oh, it's just. But anyway, long answer to a short question: There are people that go by brand, and it's and it's not the way it should be. I always recommend that when you go to a restaurant, if you have an experienced server, let them recommend what you're drinking that night, and because that's how you know you, they know the food. They know the wine list, and uh, it's it's a great way. And by the way, I'll just do a quick shout-out to my favorite restaurant in New York City. It's called Keen's Chop House, the best steak in New York City. Um, if you're ever there, the wine list is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, not a ton of Jackson Family wines at this moment, uh, but I know there will be. But the cool thing about Keen's is they own the building, and everything that they have is on uh, that's on the wine list is about probably 40% less than any place else that I've ever been. So... And and the best steak, period. The best sides in the world. Anyway, what's well, evident? You love wine. I love tequila more, actually. Really? Yeah, no question. I mean, there's a woman on TikTok that's a tequila and mezcal, like that's her thing, and she's very educational about like how if it's tequila. I now I'm forgetting which one, but there's. To be like champagne, to be called champagne at camp. It has to be from right. Alisco, I believe. Right, right. So 
the same with it's either mezcal or tequila like to be called a certain thing it has to be from these regions of Mexico and Correct. all the different anyway you want a shot? no thank you not right now <laughs> <laughs> um, depends what you have that's good shit well she's uh, it's very interesting because part of what I see is there's people like you who are educated have experience and know the stories that are behind these tastes and varieties and all these things. And then there's people like me that I hear a brand and, you know, or like I go on Google and look up and I go, oh, it's a 99 point thing. That must be good. You know, to answer, okay, go ahead. I was just, I just remembered the gentleman's name. It's the George LaCour. Cabernet. George Latour? Latour. George Latour, yeah. That's that, muy bueno. Right. So that was the this video gig I had. It was his it was celebrating their release. Yeah, it, that's it that is some pretty that is some pretty good stuff. Yeah, and it happened to be a year that hit really well. And that's where I thought like, oh I remember I didn't understand beer until I had a warm Guinness with this was it a black and tan or just a warm? No, just a regular warm Guinness. And there was like a feast at the time I ate meat. Like it was at the um, Pelican Inn. Oh. So the whole shepherd's thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, now I understand those stories of people feast and beer. And like, I get it now. Totally. And, oh, the Pelican Inn. I, I that, that place saved me. I used to be in great shape, and I remember riding my bike out to the beach one time, and I didn't bring any water, which was really stupid. And they were so nice. Pelican Inn. They gave me a pitcher of ice water. So, wow. yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was really good. Damn. Well, I don't know. What more would we talk about? Uh, where... We're going. What's what, tell me about this fabulous gig? I mean, is this something you've been doing for years? I'm on my ninth season, right on. And I started it nine years ago because I wanted to learn two reasons. One, I wanted to learn the technology of doing a podcast because I'd heard a lot about it. Mm -hmm. I just was wondering what's involved with that. And the other was I wanted to experience having something scheduled and meeting that schedule. And I was thinking of, um, you know, like late night television at the time was something. I think nowadays it's not really. No, it's crap. Right, right. But I was thinking like how amazing that must be where you've got this thing. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life or anything like that. Like you're going to hit that mark. I can't imagine anything more difficult than going on every single night. I mean, maybe a weekly show. But I'll tell you, and, and uh, this is one of the reasons I have my little hobby. When I get home from a trip, I am burnt. I mean, I am literally toast. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't, you know, the, if it hadn't been, I would never, ever do anything like this. But and it, this is so incredibly fun. But I'll tell you what, I just, I like getting home. And, you know, of course, I want to take Kathy out and, and we'll go to dinner and, and uh, you know, maybe see my cousin or somebody else. But otherwise, I just like to go down to my train room and, and you know. pretend I'm this tall and get on one of those trains and go off on an adventure. So, Have you ever been to the Christmas house in Nevada? Yes. Is it still being lit up? Do they? I don't know what's going on with COVID. I, so, I don't think they had it the last couple of years because right. we used to go there every single year. And it's so badass. Yeah. Totally yeah, badass. Yeah. So you talked about the train set. It reminds me of that room with the train and all the... Well, it's that's such a perfect holiday thing. And Kathy's yeah. always mad because I don't set up a train in here. And it's like, you want some trains? Just come down to my train room. Want to go see my train room? All right. We're done. We're done. Right on. Thank you so much. This has been awesome.